If you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 23. Father, we come to your good word this morning in the confidence that you have breathed it out for us. There is nothing else on earth that is God-breathed. And so we ask that this morning as we come to your word, that you would teach us, you would reprove us, you would correct us, you would train us in righteousness. That we would be equipped to do the work you have prepared for us to do. We give you thanks for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Matthew writes, then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and keep, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. And they lift up heavy burdens. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments, and they love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called instructors, for one is your instructor, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Let's begin by getting the setting in our heads. Pretty soon you're going to be able to say it with me. It's Tuesday of Passion Week. Jesus' crucifixion is three days away. The Lord's Supper is, the Last Supper is two days away. Jesus, starting in chapter 21 with his entry into Jerusalem, uh, had been confronted several times by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, and he had frustrated their attempts to trap him, and they finally gave it up. We're told at the end of chapter 22, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question, not in the sense of his disciples asking questions, but in that sense of trying to trip him up. They were done. But he was not done. And he denounces the scribes and the Pharisees. In most of this chapter, what we've just read, what we're looking at this morning, is just kind of the introduction to that. He's going to get detailed as we go into the verses that follow. And then he gives his disciples and the crowds a holy instruction. He does that for his disciples because he expects them to be different. He expects them to be opposite of what the scribes and the Pharisees do. And he instructs his disciples, this is interesting to me, he he instructs his disciples in front of the crowds so that the crowds know that his church is going to operate on a different principle than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so the disciples know in the months to come after the Spirit comes at Pentecost and they begin preaching and the church grows in the months and the years to come, Jesus has openly told the world what he expects of us. He's watching us. But they are too. 
So let's begin with the denunciation of the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus gives us four reasons in these verses. In verse 2, he says, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That is, they assumed Moses' authority over people. There's a, an issue with that, of course. God never said in the Old Testament anywhere, Behold, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, in the future, at some point, I will rule by committee. He spoke through Moses. Then he worked through Joshua. He led through Joshua. And then he led through individual judges. He, he meant for that time to be a time of the people simply following his word. They wouldn't do it. Everyone did what was right in his own mind. And so there were 400 years of judges. And that, that whole period of the judges... Is, is functions under that same principle. We read it at the end of the book, and everybody just did what was right in his own head, not what God had said. And so then he established a king, first Saul, then he rejected Saul for his sin and chose David. Solomon, the kingdom was divided because of Solomon's sin. The northern kingdom of, of Israel was never his kingdom. The southern kingdom, Judah, it was, and he worked through those kings individually and then through prophets individually. There are times when prophets' ministries overlap, but you never see them going together ever and speaking together ever. Some of them, like Elijah, had uh, trainees, Elisha, but Elisha was not speaking as a prophet when Elijah was. So God had always intended to rule through his word through one individual. He says to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. <clears throat> and it will be that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That final prophet is Jesus. And God holds the whole world accountable for Jesus' words to men. Now then, why does Jesus tell his disciples and the crowds, do what the scribes and Pharisees tell you to do? Well, it's not because of their authority. It's because of the word. As long as what they said conformed to the scriptures, the word of God was speaking. I interned for a pastor who was saved listening to Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland's a known heretic, but he happened to be flipping around on the TV, suffering emotional turmoil, and you heard Kenneth Copeland say, you were born in sin, and you were separated from God eternally by that sin, and there's nothing that you can do. But God sent his son to live a holy life and die in the place of sinners on the cross, and if you'll believe in Jesus, he'll save you today. That's the truth. That's the truth if Jesus says it. It's the truth if Satan says it. It's the truth. We're not saved by the authority of the preacher. We're saved by the authority of the gospel, the authority of the word of God. So Jesus says, insofar as what they are telling you to do agrees with the word of God, do it. But don't be like them. That gets to the second point, because they're hypocrites. Do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. I like how the English Standard Version translates this. They preach, but they do not practice. Practice what you preach. That, that's an old thing. I've heard that since I was a kid. Didn't know it was Bible. They 
they preach, but they do not practice. The, the scribes and the Pharisees taught others to live in strict obedience to the law of God, but they excused themselves by finding loopholes and special circumstances and appealing to the rabbis. Well, the rabbis aren't in agreement. Can we give gifts to beggars at the door on the Sabbath? Well, rabbi so-and-so says we can, and rabbi so-and-so says we can't, so who knows what we do. However, uh, however much they, they disregarded the word of God, they never disregarded their own traditions, and they valued their own traditions more than Scripture. The world often accuses us, Christians, of being hypocrites because we point out the sins of others, and we ourselves sin. I've heard that myself. You may have heard that as well. Who are you to judge others? You sin. That's right. So are we hypocrites? Well, if we preach Christ as the Savior to others while we continue to sin without confession and without repentance, we're hypocrites. If we preach Jesus Christ as our Savior, to whom we confess, to whom we turn in repentance, whom we trust to save us from our sins. And he has done such a marvelous job of saving us from our sins. We're eager to share that message with others. Then no, we're not hypocrites. If preaching the gospel required a sinless life, then when Jesus ascended, the gospel went with him. Preaching the gospel doesn't require a sinless life. It requires a humble life which is Jesus' point in this passage. The gospel is not a a, a proud, arrogant statement of the morally superior. The gospel is the hope and joy of sinners who have found hope in Christ and want others to have the same hope and the same joy that they do. That's all. That's all. The third thing with the scribes and the Pharisees is they weighed people down under false religion. They tie up heavy burdens And lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. The scribes and the Pharisees taught that righteousness could be achieved through obedience to their traditions. That's how you earn the righteousness that God requires. You follow our traditions. Their traditions were extraordinarily complicated. And a terrible burden to everyone concerned, including them. It was a full-time job to be a Pharisee. The Pharisees who took it seriously, it's about all they did. You think about what they had to do every time they walked into a building. They had to be aware of who was there. They had to wash themselves ritually, not just for the sake of sanitation, but for the sake of ritual purity every single time. There's an old tradition that I think is probably true at some points that is as they were copying the, the word of God, as they were making copies by hand of the Old Testament, whenever they came to the name of God, they would stop and wash their hands and change their clothes and then write it one letter at a time. Well, the, the name of Yahweh appears almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. That's a lot of hand washing. They created these terrible burdens. And they refused to help anybody under the burden of those traditions. Now, it's easy for us to confuse the law of God with those traditions. We have to remember that while God's law was detailed, it was never a burden. The Lord says in the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't do your daily work 
that you do to survive on the Sabbath? It's pretty simple. The Pharisees and scribes came up with dozens and, and perhaps more subdivisions of how all of that worked. They took what was simple and clear and made it so complicated that nobody can actually keep it with a good conscience. So we need to remember this. Romans seven twelve: the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. We get the idea that the, that the law of God is holy. We get the idea that the law of God is righteous, but the law of God is good. That, that's a little bit of a different measure. See, the curse of God's law was not in the law. The law was not cursed. The curse of the law is in the inability of sinners to keep it. So Galatians 3.10 says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. The curse of the law is not in the law. The curse of the law is in our inability to obey it because of our sin. The law of God, in fact, is not contradictory to the gospel. Galatians 3.21 asks and then answers, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And Paul says, may it never be. If a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed be by law. But the, the law can't give righteousness, and it never promises to give righteousness. It's not contrary to the gospel. And in fact, it serves a very important role in human life. Therefore, Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor unto Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. We're going to talk about that in more detail tonight. In brief, Galatians tells us that the law commands obedience, condemns disobedience, and points the guilty to Christ as the only hope. So that salvation is by grace through faith and not by works. So that none of us have an advantage. And none of us have a disadvantage. We all come as guilty sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees were notoriously graceless. They were the original cancel culture. They wouldn't lift a finger to help those who struggled under the burden of their human tradition. They just piled on more tradition. And fourth, they were motivated by selfish ambition. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. And then Jesus gives a series of examples of that. For they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. And they love the seat of honor at, play, at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. So you're all familiar with phylacteries and tassels. We don't need to talk about those, right? Uh, phylacteries and tassels are decorative items placed on clothing as a reminder that God has delivered his people from slavery and given him his word. The word phylactery, the Hebrew word, comes from to drip down, to hang down. And the idea was everybody at the time wore a head covering of some kind. In the morning when you get up and you put the head covering on, you would put a piece of fabric there, the phylactery. And it would hang down at your forehead. And when you put it on, you were being reminded that you'd been delivered from slavery in Egypt. How is that a reminder? This is what I think. You test it. This is what I think. I think slaves were marked as slaves. I think those who were slaves 
were identified in some way that they were slaves. And I think God freed his people from slavery in Egypt and he removed that mark and he placed on them his mark. This is my child. And that perhaps that phylactery even had his name on it. We're not told that, but perhaps it did. We are told in Revelation chapter 3 that Jesus will give a new name to those who trust him and overcome. Because we belong to him. Phylacteries served that purpose to remind the people that they had been freed from slavery. The tassels were a reminder of the, the word of God. We know what a tassel is, right? A tassel is this long cord that kind of hangs down. The Hebrew word translated tassel here could be used to refer to a flower bud. Just, just a little thing. It could refer to a tuft of fabric. Not a long cord, something small. It went on the four corners of the clothing. So front and back, left and right. And it represented the word of God. So that as you put those on your clothing, as you encountered them through the day, you were reminded the word of God has been behind me. It goes before me. If I go to my left, it's there. If I go to my right, it's there. So God has given me these, given me these little things. Like, like the, the, the feet of that unborn child that some people have as pens. Just a little thing as a personal reminder. I have been delivered from slavery in Egypt and I have been given his holy word. The Pharisees broadened their phylacteries. They actually turned them into boxes that are called mezuzahs. They're still worn by some today. This big thing that hangs there. They made the tassels into true tassels, these long cords that hang down. Because for them, the phylacteries and the tassels were not personal reminders of God's deliverance and word. They were public advertisements of their own righteousness. And they wanted to make sure that you could see them from across the street. So they've done that. Jesus says they loved having the place they love having the place of honor at banquets. It doesn't matter who the banquet is meant to honor. The scribes and the Pharisees want as much attention as the honoree. They loved having the best seats in the synagogues. In most synagogues, people sat either on benches or on the floor, but there were seats set on the platform. The scribes and Pharisees loved sitting on the platform, not so that they could better observe the service, but so that they could be seen. They were literally comparing with the word of God. Ancient synagogues were centered on the word of God. There was a pulpit where the, the scroll was laid. There was a, a cabinet right behind that pulpit that contained the scrolls of the law. It was a precious thing to them. They wanted to compete with God's word for the attention of the people. They loved being greeted in the marketplace. Jesus isn't talking about courtesy. He's not talking about being polite. He's talking about their longing for fame and notoriety. They wanted to be like Marlon Brando in The Godfather. He walks down the street, people bow to him and cater to him, and they act as though his presence is an indescribable gift to them in their common lives. That's what the scribes and Pharisees wanted. And they love being called rabbi. The root word, rab, means a chief or a master. Jeremiah 41.1 talks about Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, one of the chief officers of the king. 
Daniel 1.3 says Ashpenaz was the chief of Nebuchadnezzar's officials. So Rob means chief. It means a, a, a master. Rabbi means my chief, my master. They loved being called my master by others. They loved it when people looked at them and said, oh, my chief. Jesus says, no, no. They love that, but it's wrong. And he denounces them for it. Then he instructs his disciples and the crowds at the same time. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called instructors, for one is your instructor, that is Christ. Let's just talk about those three cautions. He gives us a single holy instruction. We'll get to that. But he proceeds it with three cautions. First, don't be called rabbi. Don't let anybody call you their chief or master. You're not. And don't demand that anybody call you their chief or master. Because you're not. There is only one teacher. Now, if you're using a King James or a New King James Bible or a, a translation that is taken from that family of manuscripts, you might see, uh, for there is one teacher, the Christ, that, that comes from the 8th century. It was not part of the earlier text of Matthew. Jesus doesn't identify who the teacher is. But we do see that in verse 9, he identifies God as our father. And in verse 10, he, he identifies himself as our instructor. So let me make an argument here for this being a Trinitarian passage. Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the spirit of God. He's the one who goes with you. He's the one who teaches you. He's the one who opens your eyes. And then Jesus says, you're all brothers, you're all siblings. Second, don't call anyone on earth father. I think it's safe to say Jesus is not talking about our biological relationships, but spiritual fatherhood, the source of life. We are not to call anyone on earth a spiritual father. There's only one father, and that's our father in heaven. Only he gives us spiritual life and adopts us in Christ. I got curious as to why some groups use father, and so I looked it up, and I found a website for an Episcopal diocese in South Carolina. They explained that they call male priests fathers because in their doctrine, when a priest baptizes someone, he gives them life. That's blasphemous. That's just blasphemous. No man on earth has the power to do anything to another person and give them spiritual life or take it away for that matter. Third, Jesus says, don't be called instructors. Uh, most of your Bibles probably say teacher here in verse 10. It's not the typical word translated teacher. This word is only used here in the New Testament. It refers to a hired tutor or a hired master who possesses legal authority over the children who are assigned to him. They had the right to instruct and to correct and to beat and to thrash. Some of them had the legal right to apprentice those children to a career. Nobody has that authority on earth. Nobody has that power 
or right on earth. The only one with that authority is Jesus. He's the Lord of the church. He is not just the Lord of all of us. He is the Lord of each of us. He doesn't assign anyone in the church domination, authority over anyone else. There is a well-intentioned movement that popped up in the 1970s called the shepherding movement, the covering movement. It was terribly abusive. It said God cares about authority. It came out of the teachings of Bill Gothard. It says God cares about authority more than anything else. So if I, as your pastor, to tell you to do something that's unbiblical, you're supposed to obey it because I'm your authority. No. No. God has appointed two roles within the church. Deacons are to meet the the practical daily needs of those who are in the body. Elders, pastors, overseers, it's the same person, are responsible to teach the word, encourage the saints, and defend them against false teachers. That's it. There's no authority. There's no authority. It's all in the scriptures, and it all belongs to Jesus. So with those three cautions, don't be called rabbi, don't call anyone father, don't be called instructor, Jesus gives a single, simple, holy instruction. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Mark what it is the disciples or the the scribes and the Pharisees do and don't do that. Mark what they do and do the opposite is what he says. Don't pursue power or authority. Don't demand recognition. Don't hunger for titles and position. Serve one another in humility. There are a number of of, uh, one another's in the Bible, more than 50 Not one of them says dominate one another, control one another, pressure one another. And instead, they they say things like serve one another, love one another, bear with one another, forgive one another. They're remarkably gracious. If you would like a list, I have them printed out. You're welcome to come up and get one. I've even got a little check mark on there so you can look it up and check it off and say I wrote that. So you can... You can, you can test each one of those, and you see if there's something in there that gives me controlling authority over your life. You show it to me, and I'll exercise it. These are one another's. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. The greatest among you shall be your servant. John 13 describes Jesus literally fulfilling this instruction. At the Last Supper, he got up. He took off his outer garments, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and he went down the line of his disciples and washed their feet. And then he said this, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus' intention was not to create a third sacrament, to add a ritual to baptism and the Lord's table. Some have taken that that way. That's not what he was intending to do. What he was saying is that the kingdom is a kingdom of service from his throne on down. There's no point of position or ministry that we can achieve where all of a sudden we are no longer servants. And instead, we are the served. There isn't one there. 
There is no act of service that is beneath a Christian, period. This is hard for us. Let's just admit it's hard for us. A whole world operates on this principle of promotion and increase. What do we do with our children? We raise them, and they grow up. We work at a job for a long time, and we get a promotion, or we get a raise. What if you worked at a job for a long time, and they kept cutting your pay, and you kept getting demotions? You wouldn't stay there. So this is hard for us. It's not natural to us. But greatness in the church functions opposite greatness in the church. The greatest of all is the servant of all, and of course the greatest servant of all is Christ. This principle is so important that we've got a promise from the Lord. And that's what closes the the passage. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. We find that also in James and in 1 Peter 5. The first part sounds like a threat. Exalt yourself and God will humble you. And in a sense, for the wicked, for for unbelievers, it is. You have built yourself up in your pride your whole life. You've lived your life that way. And when you come before the Son of God on the day of judgment, you will be humbled. And that humbling will be eternal condemnation. But there's a positive side to it. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And so it's not just spoken to unbelievers. It's spoken to the church. Jesus is promising that when we reach that point where we kind of tend to exalt ourselves a little bit, where we make ourselves more when we are, then we, when we reach positions that he is not prepared for us, he will be faithful to sanctify us by humbling us, which just stinks. I mean, that being humbled is just like the worst experience in life. It's hard, but it's part of sanctification and it's part of transformation. The day is coming when the Lord is going to exalt his people. We will share his glory. We will have the same glory that Jesus does in his exalted humanity, his glorified humanity. We will never have his glory as God, but we will share in his glory uh, as an exalted man. For now, our job is to be as Jesus was during his life, humble and willing to serve in any way we can. And we have God's promise to help us do that. So let's, let's bring this home. If you are a scribe or Pharisee, if you're proud of your religion and your traditions, if you trust in your own righteousness, judgment is coming and you won't pass the test of righteousness. Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5 at the very beginning of his ministry, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They were professionally righteous. They did it for a living. There was nobody who was as righteous as they could be nobody and it was insufficient if you belong to the lord though you don't need to be frightened of any of his works in your life you don't need to be afraid of being saved being sanctified you don't need to be afraid of being taught purified and you don't need to be afraid of being humbled see at the same time that he is working through you to bless others, he is working in you for your sanctification and glory. In, in recent weeks, a certain megachurch pastor, who I won't name, but he's probably one of the most well-known pastors in the world, that's not an exaggeration, has been taking to Twitter and listing his accomplishments. 
He has sold millions of books. Attendance at his church every weekend is greater than the population of Norfolk. But he's so insecure, he's got to remind everybody of what he's done. It's like his greatest fear is that somebody else might get credit for something. The Lord doesn't call you or me to do mighty works for him. He doesn't call us to do impressive things. He calls us to be faithful where we are and leave the results to him. There's another large church pastor. He'd be called a megachurch pastor, I think, but that would be a a megachurch is just a curse in our day. John MacArthur probably has seven or 8,000 people attending. 50-some-odd-plus years in ministry. I've heard him say in conferences, and he said the whole time, all I've done is preach scripture. All I've done is preach the word. So why, why is MacArthur getting seven or 8,000 people a week, and we get a little less than that? It's, it's God's purpose. It's God's providence. It's just not for us to, to get anxious about. It's not for us to worry about. We're called to be faithful. Let's pray. Father, most of us are frightened at the idea of being humbled. We associate being humbled with shame and embarrassment. So we need a reminder from your spirit that kingdom humility is a trait of Jesus Christ himself. That when you humble us, you are conforming us to the image of your beloved son. And so, Lord, all of us this morning ask that you would have your perfect way in us for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.